chapter and course If we can just get the country to trust us Charter a course South, East, West and North Hello and welcome back to Charter a Course, a podcast created by the David Asper Centre for Constitutional Rights at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. My name is Cheryl Milne and I'm the Executive Director of the Asper Centre. Our podcast focuses on leading constitutional cases and issues, highlighting various aspects of constitutional litigation and some of the accomplishments of U of T Law's faculty and alumni involved in these cases. It is our hope that over the course of this episode, whether you are a law student, a lawyer, or just a fan of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, that you learn about an aspect of constitutional law and litigation that interests you. I wish to first acknowledge this land from which our podcast emanates. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. Today, this meeting place is still home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work here. Along the way, we may find justice. Today, our episode focuses on various charter rights in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Subsection 6.1 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms confers the right to enter, remain in, and leave Canada upon every citizen of Canada. Subsection 6.2 provides citizens a permanent and permanent residence with the right to move and take up residence and to pursue a livelihood in any province. Over the past year, some provinces, including Ontario, have restricted movement across provincial borders. Other legal responses or lack of responses from government might also implicate Section 7 rights to life, liberty, and security of the person. While vaccine mandates raise questions about equality rights under Section 15 or freedom of conscience and religion under Section 2A. And arguments have been made that restrictions on gathering affect those rights as well as the right to assembly under Section 2C or association under Section 2D. We'll hear about the complicated relationship between our charter rights and the COVID-19 pandemic from Abby Deshman and Natalie DeRosier. We'll also hear a bit more about a topic we have recently covered, Section 1 of the Charter, particularly whether the Oaks test is too strict in the context of an emergency such as the COVID-19 pandemic. To close things off, we will hear from two recent U of T law graduates regarding their experience participating in the law school's grand moot earlier this year, which was on the topic of the constitutionality of mandatory vaccinations. Natalie DeRosier is the current principal of Massey College at U of T. Before joining us, she served as Minister of Natural Resources and Forestry under former Premier Kathleen Wynne. Natalie has been inducted into the Order of Ontario and the Order of Canada for her civil rights and Francophone advocacy. She attended law school at the University of Montreal and holds a Master of Laws from Harvard University. Abby Deshman is the Director of the Criminal Justice Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, CCLA. Abby has advocated in a wide range of constitutional contexts, from freedom of expression to police powers and oversight. Abby received her law degree from the University of Toronto Faculty of Law and her Master's of Laws from New York University. So thanks for joining us, Abby and Natalie. The COVID-19 crisis upended Canadian lives for over a year, beginning back in March 2020. In the global north, the state played a large role in responding to the crisis through legal mechanisms that enforced compliance with safety measures and created intricate vaccine distribution frameworks. Given the substantial role of government over the past year and a half, this crisis offers a unique opportunity to understand how constitutional law plays a role in enabling and constraining government action and what role a constitution ought to play in a crisis. So Natalie, you taught an intensive course this year at the law school um, called Pandemics and the Law. And I'll begin by asking what prompted you to teach this course. Well, I believe that legal academics, uh, lawyers and law students have an essential role in in discussing the management of a crisis. Because a a crisis, an emergency, be it a war, a national security threat or a pandemic, creates a little bit the epitome of tunnel vision in governments. Uh, We're all frightened and we focus typically on only one set of data. And in the pandemic, obviously, it was how many cases per day. Sometimes it was how many deaths per day. And sometimes it was also uh, the number of people admitted to intensive care units. But 
it's it's only a one set of data and and we assess government because are they able to manage or are they doing well on that set of data and we know that uh, when you have tunnel vision uh, you forget other things and this exacerbated sense of fear may lead uh, governments to actually do massive injustice because nobody's paying attention during the war uh, it led to the internment of japanese canadians for example i wasn't there during the war but i was there when uh, at 9/11 and i remember the massive changes that occurred within our, our our security system and that created you know injustices to the muslim communities and we continue to live with it so i think you always worry that if there's not enough lawyers bad habits of governance uh, will will emerge and we will have a tough time getting rid of these bad habits of of governance. Finally, I just want to say the other thing is this course was very much about law reform as well because we know that crises create demands for change. So lawyers are essential not just to be in the moment, but also to think about what are the legal reforms that are necessary that will be asked for in the future. So Abby, how has your experience at uh, CCLA shaped your perspective on sort of the enforcement of compliance with COVID-19 restrictions or the, the comments that Natalie has made about um, why we, we need to study this. Yeah, so most, most of my work um, for the past couple of years has focused on the criminal law, so policing, uh, criminal courts, sentencing, and jails and prisons. So, I mean, I immediately um, started to think about the disproportionate impacts of all of these new measures of new enforcement powers, of um, really punitive new fines and um, legal restrictions on the communities that you know we know are now um, most subject to uh, the impacts of the pandemic, right? So racialized communities, um, people who live in crowded apartment buildings, uh, people who don't speak English as the first language, families that um, police officers assume are not families because they don't meet the stereotypical vision of what a family is and are out walking in the parks. Um, drug users, uh, people who are experiencing homelessness, right? All of these communities um, are subject to not only the brunt of uh, health crisis in many ways, but also um, the most negative impacts um, of law enforcement and restrictive laws. So that was the lens that um, immediately came to my mind. And, uh, you know, my particular first thought right at the outset was about the prisons. I, we started to hear these stories at the outset of the pandemic about the cruise ships and the Canadians confined to their rooms in the cruise ships. And a, the size of a cruise ship room is often the size of a prison cell and prisons are not cruise ships, right? Uh, the healthcare in our prisons is abominable. People are detained there, mostly pre-trial in our provincial institutions, uh, lots of double and triple bunking. It's just both a healthcare crisis and a humanitarian crisis. And, you know, so that was the lens that I was approaching um, a lot of the early uh, measures through was those populations that were most at risk, um, both in terms of their health, but also in terms of, you know, all of the negative impacts of new laws and enforcement measures. Is there a particular case that stands out for you um, looking back over this past year, year and a half? I, I'll do one success and one failure. Uh, as I said, prisons were top of mind for me. And very early on, um, we started to mobilize to push our prisons and jails, our bail courts, uh, correctional um, authorities to release as many people as they possibly could. Many, many, many thousands of people can be perfectly um, safely supervised in the community and do not need to be confined to a dangerous prison during a time of a public health crisis, which makes the people who do remain in prison safer because those institutions are less crowded and you can actually have a hope of doing some kind of uh, physical distancing and obviously makes the people who were released uh, safer. So we started to monitor that and the federal government really was not releasing people. Provincially, we did see incarceration rates decrease mostly through the work of the bail system, but federally, which is sentenced uh, people, we didn't see them coming out of the institutions um, in anywhere near the numbers that we would have expected. And so we launched a case, right? We launched a challenge to a failure um, to keep people in a safe and healthy environment, um, which is required under the statute, required under the charter. And it took 
way longer. The course of the litigation was just no match for the course of the pandemic, right? We knew we needed evidence, so we put in a lot of evidence, and then the government wanted to put in a lot of evidence, and then they wanted a lot of cross-examinations. And by the time we were ready, um, and you know, we pushed as fast as we could, but by the time the court was ready to hear our interim injunction, people were starting to be vaccinated. Right. Uh, there was new evidence about airborne transmission. It was, it was, it's very difficult to effectively litigate on a large scale um, during a crisis for lots of reasons, some of which we'll get to. But one of them is just the speed of our courts and the process. And uh, it just takes time and a pandemic moves faster. So that was litigation we actually withdrew. You know, there were some, I'd say, very small successes on the prison front, like individuals who got released, one individual who got released after um, they got lawyers to threaten a judicial review, but really did not see a lot of success from litigation um, in prisons. And then the other example I'll be quicker on uh, was a Thunder Bay order. So there was an order that came out of Thunder Bay that everybody released from the Thunder Bay jail had to proceed immediately to the isolation center and essentially was mandatorily detained in an isolation center upon release from the jail. Didn't matter if they had a place to go, didn't matter if they had an isolation plan, didn't matter if they had not been tested positive for COVID. Every single person was detained walking out of that jail um, and detained in a shelter that was the site of active outbreaks. Right? So if they hadn't been infected by the overcrowded jail, they were going to a shelter where it was very likely um, that they'd be facing risk of COVID-19 infection. So that was one where we were all geared up to litigate. We thought it was an illegal detention order, um, sent a demand letter and immediately saw um, the, the order go away and they backed down. They said it wasn't because of our demand letter and in the impending litigation, they said it was because they no longer needed this emergency matter, uh, measure. Um, but you know, there's been a couple of times where we've seen those types of smaller, really, really, um, say, clearly unconstitutional orders um, fall by the wayside after we've brought attention to them or, you know, geared up for litigation. And, and so there have been successes. Um, some of them have been quiet, though. Well, we could see that as well the, in the, the initial ban against all visitors in long-term care, uh, there was a, a threat of a litigation, and suddenly the government realized, well, actually, the, the, the threat of the litigation uh, is forced them to reevaluate their policy and essentially recognize that some people were dying in the long-term care because their families were not there to provide the care that was needed. So they had to adapt, and, and we saw changes both uh, in Ontario, but also in other provinces that adopted a more nuanced approach and that's that is usually what we want we it's it's a it's a way of testing the government again in this tunnel vision to saying no no exceptions no nothing with recognizing that they have to have a more tailored approach creating some exemptions one example that I was wanted to discuss is the the way in which uh, a humanitarian exceptions uh, needed to be put forward. And we saw that internationally in some cases where the courts were forcing the governments to uh, have a, an approach that provided some ways of responding to humanitarian plight of people. You know, So, so I think it's important to, to litigate these cases because they create a discipline within the government. So what we saw was um, as things were changing on the ground and, and information is changing about what we know about the pandemic is that you've got government sometimes not acting quickly enough. So the courts somehow intervening, even just the threat of court intervening to make them shift. So there is this kind of balancing back and forth. You know, so your perspective, Natalie, and as being an MPP, I mean, you know, how has that sort of shaped your views on as a, and as a scholar, um, just how those those work either symbiotically or not <laughs> in in the kind of emergency powers that uh, were being exercised? Well, I, my experience of government is interesting because I was a member of a a majoritarian government, and then I was in the opposition. And it's uh, so I, I saw both sides. And, you know, it, it's classic to say that politics is the art of the possible, but it, it is also the science of communication. We live in a deliberative democracy, you know, like you need to create the narrative of the stories, not just because of elections. 
in between elections, you really want people to trust their government. So they have to know what's going on and they have to, they have, to have a sense that what is being deployed is reasonable and makes sense and so on. So um, my worry uh, during this, this pandemic was the narrative was very much a middle class narrative. And I think uh, Abby spoke about this. It was very much uh, stay home <laughs> uh, as though you had a home as though you had a safe home, you had a home big enough for everyone to be there to work, play uh, together. So, so there was this assumption that that indeed the, the key messages and the key narrative was let's protect the people who are in the middle class and let's not talk very much and let's not worry about the people for whom these orders make no sense. And so that's why the the litigation that was brought by CCLM, but by others about, you know, the homeless being affected by the curfew in Montreal way differently than if you have a nice house where you can go and watch Netflix at night. You know? So there's there's that sense in which the, the narrative of a government uh, can avoid difficult clientele. And I think that's why we need to, to have a legal system that, that is responsive. And I agree with Abby. I think we saw in other countries uh, faster returns. You know, in Israel there were some some orders that were challenged, and the courts were able to respond within a few days. We're not used to that here, and I think that's one of the lessons of the pandemic. I think is that probably the court system, if it wants to play its disciplining role, it must uh, get on board and be faster. So I think that's that's going to be one of the lessons learned. I think. We saw early on a, a focus on um, limitations on Canadians' mobility rights. You know, this is a global pandemic, so there's there were limits on traveling in and out of Canada, and but also as well as between provinces, travelers were required to quarantine for 14 days upon arrival from another country, and interprovincial travel was considerably limited earlier this year. And so as a, and to some extent, again, that, that's focusing on more of the middle class rights, as you, as you mentioned, right? The, the people who can travel or want to travel to visit family, et cetera. As a former legislator, if you could put yourself in the shoes of the federal and provincial legislators, how do you think mobility rights were addressed in the development of these restrictions, if at all, Natalie? Yes, but first of all, that the issue of mobility is interesting because it, it does evoke the idea that it's a middle class problem, but it's not, not always. Uh, in a way, what was interesting is even at the, the, the architecture of public health, you know, at the highest level, like the international health regulations, do posit that you, the restrictions to travel must be only as necessary. They must be the least intrusive ones. And the reasons for that is that travel and mobility is not always just a luxury. It's sometimes is a humanitarian necessity. You know, people uh, escape violence. Uh, they as they and there are some humanitarian aspects to it. Visiting a dying relative. Uh, family reunifications, particularly when it's a long pandemic, like it's it's 14 months and so on, and 18 months now. So I think what was interesting, and I'm sure that uh, uh, Abby may talk about the Taylor case that the CLA brought, but I want to draw attention to, to me to one interesting case from New Zealand, the Christensen case in New Zealand. When this guy arrives in New Zealand, he's forced to go in uh, isolations for 14 days, and he asks to be relieved to end his... his uh, isolations uh, earlier on, uh, early on because his father is actually dying <laughs> is really dying and he's able to get, convince the court that that indeed the failure of the government to have a more nuanced approach a more individual approach is wrong and so i think that was a, to me an interesting aspect that's because the Taylor case is a little bit the same way that public health assess risks in in a in a global way in a collective way where some people, and the message there was, you need to provide individuals the ability to manage the risk in a, in a more nuanced and tailored way. So I thought that was interesting. And I think that will be another message of the future pandemics is that, you know, you cannot just have these blank orders that everybody's the same and, and life is messy and, and you, you, we should demand indeed a more sophisticated approach to respond to individual cases. And so, Abby, how did CCLA view the mobility restrictions when they came into effect? And 
How were these concerns, if any, addressed? Yeah, so, I mean, we were quite concerned uh, about the mobility restrictions. And from the outset, and this will be familiar to people who are unfamiliar with like uh, constitutional thinking, I mean, our focus was on are these justifiable restrictions? Uh, are they based on evidence? Um, are they you know, rationally connected? Are they minimally impairing? Are they proportionate to the risk? Um, and uh, particularly with the Newfoundland ban, um, which was what we uh, directly litigated, we didn't think it was. You know, We just didn't see the evidence that this type of measure was necessary. And it was certainly having really devastating personal consequences for people. So I agree entirely with Natalie. This is, you know, the people who bore the brunt of this were the people who had to travel because they had to move away from their families for work. Um, or they were seasonal workers who all of a sudden couldn't easily get back in to see their kids, right? Also people who had double properties and wanted to spend their summers in, in Newfoundland, right? But those weren't the really, um, you know, the heart of uh, where our concerns lay. You know, the, the co-applicant in our case needed to go back to uh, bury her mother, Right. She um, had spoken to her mother every single day, visited her mother every year, uh, had a plan about how she was going to self-isolate, had worked out with a funeral director um, that her mother's body was going to be held for the 14 days to allow her to self-isolate and was still denied uh, permission to go back and um, bury her mother. So, you know, for us, not only there was there you know, a lack of evidence um, that self-isolation requirements uh, were not effective, that people um, were really uh, going to prejudice public health by breaking uh, the rules about self-isolation, but also an inflexibility uh, in terms of uh, what government officials saw as necessary travel um, for individuals' lives. And, and just to give some context on Newfoundland, right? what was happening in Newfoundland, when that law was passed, um, there were uh, about 17 cases of COVID-19 in the province. Right, This was not at the height of a wave of COVID. This was after their medical experts had declared that they had crushed the first wave. Um, and it, it also followed a very public incident where people thought that there were tourists whale watching off of the coast of Bonavista, right? So there was public outcry, police were called, no tourists were ever found, the incident was never confirmed, but that was in the background of the political discussion that was occurring before the travel ban came into effect. And it just raises um, this very disturbing and well-worn trope during emergency that outsiders are the risk. Right. You know, how many times in past and current emergencies have we seen people say we're safe here? We're concerned about the people from there. We're concerned about the foreign element. And it, you know, it is something that we need to vigorously resist. It is so corrosive. It is so damaging. We've seen it come up multiple times in this public health crisis with really, really intensely negative impacts for individuals. And there are some times when a travel ban might be justified. You know, we haven't litigated the travel bans in the north. Um, we've asked questions about them, but the north is in a different context in terms of their healthcare system, their ability to uh, manage a COVID crisis than some of the southern um, jurisdictions in Canada. But it is something that needs to be really actively questioned when you see those types of narratives justifying um, laws and restrictions. It is also important to say that it's the other is always the threat. That's correct. But also there's a way in which government want to um, establish that they're doing something, you know, so they and, and that's why we need to have to create this discipline of being there and requiring constitutional responses, responses that are uh, rooted in evidence <laughs> that that are actually not going beyond what is necessary because there is a, a risk, particularly in a pandemic, where there's uncertainty. Uh, we know that there's going to be new cases and people just want a response, you know, and there's an escalation because the, there's more risk around because the, 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 the the spread of the disease is happening, the spread of the virus is being seen, and then you just, just want more, you know, be stronger, just uh, do, be more restrictive, uh, on and on and on. So that it, it's that uh, escalation that needs to be resisted. 
the other thing that comes along with it, you know, every time you create a new law, um, there's enforcement, right? So this wasn't just a travel ban. This was um, new powers given to inspectors as defined by the minister in Newfoundland to conduct warrantless searches, gave the police the right to remove individuals to a point of entry, like an airport or a ferry terminal, right? So every time a law is created, there is an automatic turn to think about, okay, well, how are we gonna enforce this? What do we need? What powers do we need to give to people to enforce it? Um, and we know that those powers are open to abuse, right? Every time you create a new police power, you um, create the ability for uh, police and other law enforcement actors to use it in ways that you didn't intend. Um, and, and very frequently the you know discriminatory background that underlies all of these systems comes into play to uh, inform who actually is targeted by these new powers. Well, I know that CCLA was very much vocal about the the creation of offenses around use of public places and bylaw offenses and the fines, um, that sort of thing. And um, you know, we had curfews and closing of public parks. Can you tell us a little bit more about what was most concerning about that or what you saw in terms of, um, as you've mentioned, the sort of quality rights that come in in, in disproportionate reinforcement or enforcement of those offenses? Yeah. Some of the early offenses, some of the early laws that came in were just, they were just poorly drafted, um, to be frank. You know, uh, things were happening very fast and maybe that's a charitable view. I mean, many would say that's an overly charitable view of government, but uh, you know, I've, I've spent a little time in government and I sometimes know how these things get drafted. Um, and there were laws that came in that didn't make sense. And so in Nova Scotia, you had a provincial order saying no one could be within six feet of anybody else outside, right? It didn't matter if they were your kids, didn't matter if they were emergency services being given. It was just a blanket ban on being in close contact within six feet of anybody, right? That is just a very poorly drafted law. And the response of the government was, well, we trust police to figure out who's actually, you know, who should actually be punished under this law and who shouldn't, which of course is an entirely inappropriate way uh, to think about rule of law and, um, and, and you know, who should bear the brunt of uh, enforcement actions. Um, in other jurisdictions, there were bans on all in-person religious ceremonies, regardless of if it was happening in your house um, with your own family, right? So very knee-jerk reactions, quickly drafted, sloppy laws, very poor communication at the outset as well. In Ontario, it was very confusing what you could and couldn't do in a park. Um, and Park benches were off limits, soccer fields were off limits, even if they weren't marked, but green spaces were open. But in Ottawa, you could only walk through the green space. You couldn't stop and linger in the green space. So people were receiving $880 tickets. What One woman went into an area of High Park in downtown Toronto. She was um, collecting greens because she was on a fixed income. She was elderly, her community garden had been closed and she needed to supplement her food. And she happened to be in an unmarked off-leash dog park in High Park. And she received an $880 fine. You know, we had mixed race couples who were racially profiled because the bylaw officer did not believe that they were uh, a couple, um, followed them followed uh, the black man, called the police. At one point, he, this person, this black man, sat down in the middle of a road in High Park and put his hands above his head because he was so concerned um, that he was going to be shot and killed by the multiple law enforcement officers who were following them. We had lots of people with English as a second language who didn't understand all of these complex rules who were receiving you know, thousands of dollars in fines because they let their kids play on playgrounds that didn't have any indication that they were closed right there. And certainly there hadn't been any, you know, translation of the signs. And so really broad laws, very poorly drafted, and really with the brunt of the effects being felt by people who have always been under increased scrutiny by the police or who needed this public space and these um, amenities that we call them, they weren't amenities for a lot of these people, right? They were essential outlets. They had to sit on a park bench because of a medical condition or they had to get out into public space because they, they live in a very small apartment. I'd say the second wave of COVID laws were much more tightly drafted, right? We had complained a lot. We tracked enforcement. There were some provinces that relied heavily on enforcement, some didn't. But we did 
see, although some of those early mistakes were remedied, there were still provinces that turned to very restrictive laws and, you know, doubled down on COVID policing as their primary public health response. So Quebec is a very obvious one that, you know, uh, turned to a, a province-wide curfew um, that mandated the police, told the police that they were going to be going and knocking on doors, they were going to get access to telewarrants, and astronomical number of tickets have been issued in Quebec. Um, originally, the response of the government was, yes, this applied to homeless and people who are experiencing homelessness as well, no matter that they didn't have a safe place to go. Um, yes, this curfew was going to apply to them. Um, so, you know, I think uh, it, it's changed through the pandemic, the way that these laws are drafted. But um, and in some of the some of the early concerns we have had waned in some jurisdictions. Uh, but we have definitely seen um, some provinces, you know, deepen their reliance on very broad, very restrictive laws coupled with really punitive enforcement that impacts marginalized populations the most. So I want to bring this back to the charter um, because we're talking about how, you know, these sort of some of these laws were poorly drafted or um, they seem sort of unfair. And I think that I mean, let's start with sort of Section 7, right? That many of the laws that you've described, one could say, impact at least liberty rights. And so, Natalie, I just want to turn to you and say, like, so how does that work when you, if you were to apply Section 7 to some of these? And I recognize that we weren't able to actually have, we didn't have the time to challenge some of these laws in the court because of the, the, the long time it would take to get a, a court case through. But how would you apply Section 7? And a lot of people don't realize that Section 7 has two parts. <laughs> that isn't just about uh, interference with life, liberty, and security of person. There's, there's a, this other part about principles of fundamental justice. If you could just explain how that might apply to the kind of laws that, that Abby's talking about. My sense, and I, I want to bring it also to Section 1 eventually, because most of the, of the litigation the government was relying on on section one to to justify its its, its intervention, and I would say a lot of cases uh, the court uh, provided lots of leeway to governments, uh, and it's understandable because it's uh, particularly early on the pandemic the courts were kind of judging governments as being well what's a reasonable government in a pandemic does, <laughs> as opposed to the reasonable government that we expect outside of a pandemic. So that's, I think, the flexibility of Section 1. Uh, I think it, that's its, its role is to adapt to circumstances. So I, I was not surprised by that. I continue to believe that it's important that courts demand some form of accountability. I mean, it's a form of accountability, Section 1. It's our right to rational decision making. It's it's a form of demanding government that they explain what they're trying to do and what choices they had and share information of, uh, that they have. So it's an important forum, not just because of the results, whether you win or lose, it's the process itself in our democracy. And as Abby says, you know, to worry about the ones, the, the people that will be affected that may not be, have been intended, you know. So, so that the idea of expanding the range of consideration that a government is paying attention to is also part of it. So my sense is that the courts were responding and using precautionary principles. They were really giving lots of leeway to government, but that changed over time uh, as we got better information, as, you know, the, there was a sense in which, well, there's a role here that should not be abandoned. It's it's a role of accountability. Just you should not give a blank check to government. That's not. It's it's important that that governments have their feet uh, to the fire, not only in the legislature but also in the courts. Otherwise, there's too many mistakes that will will take place. Yeah, we held our first episode for, of this podcast. We spoke with Professor Jacob Weinreb about the way that the charter places limits on the way with the state can actually limit our rights. So, and talked about the Oaks test. And so, Abby, I was just wondering, you know, based on what Natalie is saying, is that you know to think that the onus placed on government by Section One, as as established by the Oaks test held its own with respect to the rights protection over the course of the pandemic, or do you worry about a trend? where the onus weakens in the in the long term just because people say, well, it's a pandemic, so government can can limit rights um, in a more 
um, dramatic way as Natalie is talking about. Definitely the latter, right? I, I am worried about the long-term repercussions of some of the decisions that are coming out in the course of emergency. Emergencies are very specific times, but we know that the impacts of the emergency extend far beyond, you know, just that moment in time. And I think that some of the tension in the Oaks test during emergency is this idea, the public health response works on a precautionary principle, right? It is, we don't know what the risk is. We don't know all the answers. Our science isn't there yet. We need to take these measures in order to prevent the worst case scenario. We need to be cautious and put in place more measures than we might need so that we don't get to a place where we can't claw things back, where, you know, we have massive loss of life, where our hospitals are overrun. That really does not jive with Section 1 of the Constitution, which requires that the government prove, demonstrably justify based on evidence, that their limits are justifiable, that their laws that they've put in place that limit people's rights are actually based in evidence. And I think, you know, there is and there should be extra latitude given to government to legislate during emergency. You know, you, you cannot wait for the results of peer-reviewed, double-blind studies when you're in the midst of a pandemic. Science is not going to keep up with the pandemic if that's the proof you're waiting for. But I do think that the challenge is how do you make sure that your rational framework um, is limited to that particular emergency? And I, you know, I see it in other areas of law, cases that have nothing to do with the pandemic, where this idea of there is an uncertain risk out there. And in order to confront that uncertain risk, we need to have very sweeping restrictions on a whole bunch of people because we can't figure out when that risk is going to materialize. Hey, that's not a narrative that's limited to a pandemic. That's a narrative that government um, tries to use in a lot of different constitutional cases to justify their actions. Um, there's a Supreme Court case right now where the government is saying, you know, yeah, let us put restrictions on this whole group of people because we don't actually know who in this group of people presents the real risk. Science can't tell us, so we should be justified in limiting the rights of everybody in this group. Right? So that is the really pernicious line of reasoning that may make sense in a very time-limited emergency, but has a real risk of flowing over into other areas of constitutional adjudication and other areas of public health, frankly, because we do have other epidemics that are raging, right? We do have crises, uh, overdose public health crisis um, that disproportionately impacts people who are jailed. And when I think about mandatory public health orders requiring everybody exiting a jail to self-isolate and be subject to supervision, you know, the most dangerous time for people in terms of their life and their health is when they exit jail because so many people overdose when they after they're released. You know, so there are other public health crises. There are other very, very pressing um, problems that our government is responding to. And I think it's very important to maintain a really rigorous constitutional framework on in all kinds of areas of life. And, and there's a danger that this will start to water down what we expect from government um, when it comes to, you know, dealing with other pressing problems. Some of the um, concerns have focused on that element of the Oaks test that really talks about minimally impairing the right, so that when you may have the right justification and the pressing a substantial objective of the public health objective, but are these measures actually minimally impairing and the government gets this margin of error or latitude in coming up with those measures? But so, Natalie, how do you think that that sort of minimal impairment test has been really applied or, or considered in some of these measures that government has put in place? I think it's been a long time since government have been given lots of leeways under minimal impairment. It's not only in the pandemic. So that trend had begun before. But I, I'm with Abby on this. We should continue to demand better evidence and, and more rigor not just because it's constitutionally required, but it leads to better government. <laughs> it leads to better governance. The fact that a government would, would have good evidence to support their action and design in a more tailored fashion the way in which they should accomplish their objectives helps us all. It helps us in, in ensuring that, number one, they measure the right things and not the wrong ones, that they look at the impact generally of their 
on every one of their measure and not just on the tunnel vision that, that they're trying to, to succeed. So I think it just leads to, to better governance overall. So, so my sense is that we will continue to resist this. I think we need to have a, a, a legal community that is prepared to constantly asking for better laws and asking for better evidence for the restrictions that are, that are imposed. I, it's just a good discipline to have. So to me, I'm, I don't think the pandemic will have changed that that much. I think we just it's it just going to be a constant struggle, and it is a constant struggle for the legal community and for the constitutional lawyer to continue to articulate well what are ways in which you you ought to look at minimal impairment. And I'll just add one last point: is I think we should also be more focused a, a little bit on trying to have laws that it's it's not all of nothing you know it's not as though the entire mobility ban was going to be lifted it was demanding that it be done in a way that was responsive to the variety of circumstances and and be more nuanced more tailored have appeal processes maybe for people that couldn't be heard uh, uh, some speed in decision making so all of these tools that are good governance tools that we should ask that that should become a little bit part of the analysis in, in section one, you know, you could also demand government that they reevaluate their policies every so often, you know, a sense of duty to learn, a duty to share information, being more transparent, duty to consult, all this could be kind of built into a, a, a richer section one analysis that demands more of government. And that's the role of section one. <laughs> So we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about vaccinations. I mean, because that is the the current sort of hot topic at the moment with, you know, the majority of Canadians being vaccinated at this point. And we have a very vocal, small minority of people who are adamantly opposed to vaccinations. And the notion of, I mean, we, we hear the word passport, vaccine passports, proof of vaccine, vaccine certificates, all of those sort of things in order to to be able to participate. And so, you know, I just wonder how the charter applies to these laws that are now coming in province by province in terms of mandating or whether they're mandating and making people have vaccines, as some people would phrase it, or at least restricting their activity if they're not vaccinated, how the charter might apply to this. Well, certainly I think... Uh I would argue that the charter applies when the government makes the decisions that will have discriminatory impact in access to services. Even if it's non-essential services, it does uh, create a discrimination uh, based on a choice of health, medication and health. And it is normal for people to uh, to worry. It's normal for lawyers to worry about the both the enforcement and about the way it is des- the design of a vaccine passport and the privacy infringement that can occur when government accumulates information about you and distributes it, uses it. I mean, we know historically that identity cards were used uh, eventually to uh, in the Rwanda genocide, you know, because people were identified either as Hutus and Tutsis. It became a tool of oppression and a, a you know, a tool of, of the genocide. So we always worry that when government is creating ways of categorizing people, it could be used against them eventually. Now, maybe the vaccine passport could be soon not as an identity card, but as a nexus card, you know, it facilitates it. It makes it quicker for you to access services. So if you don't have the vaccine demonstration, then you will be asked a whole bunch of questions. You will be subject to a much you know, as to a COVID testing, for example. And so there are ways in which we can justify a vaccine passport that could be reasonable in a free and democratic society, provided that it is, it has the proper exemptions, it has the ability for people to debate or be heard on to why it is that they cannot or will not be vaccinated. So I think to me, it's exactly the same problem as we had with mobility violations and so on. It's the question is about the tailoring. You know, who are the exemptions? Will there be an exemptions for religious freedom? Certainly, there will be an exemption for medically contraindicated. But will there be other types of exemptions that will look at the particular circumstances of people? So I think we're early on in trying to assess how they're developing them and the type of vaccinations, uh, passport, or that will exist. I think we should 
demand that there be as little information in it for privacy protection. You know, you don't want your entire life to be disclosed constantly uh, just to access the restaurant. So there are lots of issues and it's normal and it's a good thing to ask questions of government in the, in the implementation and the development and the rolling out of, of these uh, vaccine passports. I'll just add, I, I think we shouldn't underestimate the privacy and the impacts that you know this might have on people's lives. I've, I've seen policies where you know you have to send your exemption or your vaccination status to your direct supervisor. Right? And, and there are a lot of people who feel extremely strongly and have very, very strong opinions and views on people who are not vaccinated. Even if they have a medical exemption, even if, you know, they have very strongly, deeply held religious beliefs, you know, there is a lot of emotion and sometimes hostility that comes with this issue. I've also seen um, policies from employers who require unvaccinated people to wear masks at all times in the office and do not require the same thing of vaccinated colleagues, right? That kind of measure for me really starts to get away from public health because we know there's a risk of transmission if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated and opens people up to an enormous amount of individual prejudice and pushback. And it's unnecessary, right? You don't need to give that information to your direct supervisor. You know, there are HR processes that should be in place, especially in larger companies and institutions where you know you fire while that type of sensitive information and the types of accommodations and the medical information from your direct colleagues and your supervisors. Um, and that really will have an enormous impact on people's ability to fully participate in really important aspects of their life, including including work. And we did see during the summer when, you know, there were some people who, for various medical reasons, were not able to constantly wear a mask. And at CCLA, we certainly got many, many, many emails about the hostility, anger, violence that those individuals faced um, for daring to walk into a store uh, without a mask when they had a very important and valid reason not to do so. So I think that there's a lot at stake for people uh, if, you know, companies and governments don't get this right. There's a lot at stake and a lot of anger on both sides. You know, I mentioned the sort of strong views of the people who are adamantly anti-vaccination and protesting in front of hospitals and blocking people getting in and out of hospitals has is, is been something that people have seen as being aggressive and troubling. But I wonder to some extent, I hear the caution that both of you are expressing in terms of how something like this gets ruled out, but we've had you know, vaccination requirements for children in schools and for other kinds of, you know, like smallpox and other kinds of diseases and, and viruses in the past. And so what makes this different? So just kind of commenting on whether or not having some kind of, you know, at least some kind of element of compulsion, I guess, if you will, on vaccination, whether that, you know, it could withstand the Section 1 test or even just, the, you know, the principles of fundamental justice under Section 7. Well, I think the questions that you're raising are will depend a little bit on, on the evidence that you're able to, to establish. Now, just on children having to be vaccinated to go to school, there are exemptions, <laughs> you know, uh, parents can say, I don't want my kid to be vaccinated and provided they take a course that most of the time alleviate their fears uh, or not. Again, there is an incentive to be vaccinated. It's, it's a demand to be vaccinated, but they are exemptions and they are a recognition that some people may may need to be accommodated. So, so that will be one issue I think that we will all look to is the way in which it is being rolled out with concern for the people that may be uh, badly affected. The second point, I think, in your question that is interesting is in the context where we were supposed to, to look for herd immunity, which was to have a certain percentage of people having been vaccinated, was going to be sufficient to deal with, with the pandemic in some fashion. We're no longer talking about herd immunity, or, or the percentage is always rising, or it's it's so so. It's interesting that at some point you someone may want a government to establish why herd immunity is no longer a valid 
concept or is no longer is not sufficient. So it's okay to ask these questions and ask the government to come with the answer why it is. So my sense is that yes, uh, probably uh, some vaccine compulsion, some vaccine incentivization may be able to be uh, approved under Section 1, may be viewed as a reasonable and necessary because it is a pandemic and, you know, but the way in which it is formulated, it's the attention to details, the type of enforcement and so on. Those are all questions that ought to be considered and we ought to continue to pay attention to them, you know. Uh, so, so uh, and maybe they would be a range of lawsuits that will take place one after the next so that we continue to make sure that there's no um, overzealousness in in uh, mandating vaccine to for uh, for other things after that and that's what people worry you know you you may be in favor of vaccine i'm certainly <laughs> in favor of vaccine i am and so on but you may still worry that how often and will that create a precedent so that every year people that are not vaccinated for the flu are suddenly being prevented from accessing certain services so you know it's it, it's it's okay to 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 be concerned about bad habits of governance, I call it. I want to thank both of you for taking the time today to walk us through some of the charter rights issues raised by our government's responses to the pandemic. We've been speaking with Natalie DeRosier, legal scholar and the current principal of Massey College at U of T, and Abby Deshman, a lawyer with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. To close, or to sum up, what would either of you consider the most pressing constitutional rights issue that has arisen during the pandemic? Well, I want to say what frightens me the most in this pandemic, besides everything that we've talked about, is also the lack of accountability. I mean, we've had some statutes that are being put forward to say, well, from now on, you can't sue if the gov- if you feel that the government has, has badly behaved or if uh, long-term care has not uh, followed the rules and so on. So I worry a lot about this trend of diminishing the role of the courts in managing and playing its important role that in, in our democracy. So to me, that's that's a threat. And I would want actually uh, people to worry about that. You know, we need the courts to play their role and we need to uh, them to be present. It helps us all. And, and I'll pair that with um, the degradation of parliamentary democratic accountability, right? So an emergency, the invocation of emergency powers constitutes an enormous amount of power in the executive, right? So the premier, the ministers, they are given sweeping powers to enact lots of rules very fast. And at some point, this emergency has to end, right? At some point, those powers have to flow back to, you know, the legislature as a whole. We have to undo a lot of the concentration of power that we have. And and we haven't seen that yet. And one of the risks of an emergency is that power remains concentrated. And we have seen, you know, the shutdown of legislative debates on the basis that we can't we can't debate vaccine passports. We can't we can't discuss, you know, the details of these initiatives because it's too dangerous to the public discourse at this time for us to be having a nuanced discussion about this. Right? Those types of democratic deficits are particularly concerning the longer they extend and the longer we see ourselves in a state of emergency. Um, So we'll really be watching to see, you know, do these powers come back down as the public health crisis wanes or as this becomes the new normal? How are we going to reassert democratic checks and balances over the really extraordinary executive powers that are being used right now? Great. Well, thank you very much. I think we'll be watching what happens through our courts and from government as things shift and change as they will. And that's Cross our fingers and hope there isn't some new variant that makes things even more frightening for for people out there. And uh, I want to thank you again for taking this time with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. In our practice corner today, we are going to change things up a bit and focus on the perspectives of law students. So today we will be speaking with Hannah Awad and Jerry Angelova, two recent graduates of U of T Law who took part in the school's grand moot this past year in which the topic was the constitutionality of mandatory vaccines. We want to explore what it was like for these law students to construct their legal arguments and what a moot looks like, 
So our practice segment is about the preparation and the conduct of a constitutional appeal, but as a simulation exercise at law school. So thank you, Jerry and Hannah, for joining us today. I want to start off by asking you to describe the mooting process for non-law students and non-lawyers, and what kind of skills does it help you build, and why did you decide to participate in the grand moot? So over to you, Hannah. Uh, thanks, Cheryl. Um, so mooting is uh, kind of a, a fictional, usually appeal, that, that law students participate in, uh, either in the form of a competition, that's most common, where you compete against teams from, from other law schools or from, from your law school. Uh, and occasionally, like with the Grand Moot, it's kind of an exhibition where there's no competition, but it's, it's a performance for, uh, a performance and advocacy for your, your community and, and, and your school. The primary skills that, that Mooting helps build are kind of concrete advocacy skills. So usually the students who Moot have to construct their arguments and write out the, the written advocacy components, usually a factum. They have to do all the research involved in that. They have to kind of come up with the best angles and and the, the most sympathetic version of events for their, for their side. And they also have to work on their oral advocacy skills because that's, that's kind of the, the bread and butter of mooting and be able to present a compelling presentation of their side and answer the questions that the judges will inevitably have for them. So you both participated in different moots at the faculty. I know I've coached Jerry in the Wilson moot, which focuses on Section 15 of the Charter. Um, what makes the Grand Moot different, Jerry? Well, so the Grand Moot being internal to the University of Toronto and not having that competitive component to it, I think allows students to take more creative liberties in drafting their arguments. Um, I mean, aside from the pressure of having everybody's eyes on you, um, you can really take more time to develop arguments that, you know, wouldn't um, fly in other circumstances. You might be more judicious about what you would say in a competitive moot, but I think in the grand moot, what we were told is to have fun with it, really try to push the envelope on certain legal arguments. So I thought that that was a really fun aspect of the grand moot in particular. And you're doing this in front of real judges. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> no pressure. So, <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, there's, I mean, usually there's a Supreme Court of Canada judge that, that sits on the panel, as well as from the Court of Appeal or, or lower courts. So it's actually feels very real, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, it definitely does. And and the the judges are always very engaged. You know, they're they're always kind, but but definitely won't let you get away with a bad argument. And so you really have to prepare quite a bit. Now, our segment today was about the charter and COVID. So how did you find the research process for the issue of mandatory vaccinations? Did you find it to be a novel issue or was there plenty of material available for you to work with? Well, we hear this time and time again, we're dealing with unprecedented times. So, I mean, when I started conducting research on this issue, I think the most analogous case I could find was one from 1905 from the U.S. Supreme Court, and that was dealing with mandatory vaccines uh, for smallpox outbreaks. Um, <laughs> so in that case, you know, we were dealing with the 14th Amendment, so it's not directly applicable to the charter um, litigation here, but something that stood out in that case was that real liberty for all cannot exist where people are free to make choices that will affect the liberties of others. So that's where we started framing our overall theme about the common good. The challenges with doing that in the scope of Section 7 is that Section 7 is fundamentally designed to focus on the individual. So that that for me was challenging because I had to effectively argue that, you know, we need to think about common interests when we are framing these Section 7 analysis, uh, particularly under the principles of fundamental justice. So that part was challenging, but um, Hannah's experience doing Section 1 also balanced that out nicely. So I was wondering if you could each briefly describe the fact pattern and the arguments you gave addressing those facts during the moot. Sure, I, I can talk quickly about the facts. So, so the grand moot is always a, a fictional fact pattern. It's not based on, usually not based on an existing case. And in this case, the, the problem was about a, a fictional pandemic that's eerily similar to the one we are living through now in the, the fictional state of Flavel, where the government responded by imposing a mandatory vaccine policy, uh, the Vaccination Act, on all individuals, requiring everyone who is medically able to get vaccinated. 
the Vaccination Act did not include an exemption for religious or conscience-based beliefs, and it attached both monetary penalties and the possibility of imprisonment to the contravention of, of the Vaccination Act. And so we were, Jerry and I were, were the respondents, we were defending the, the government's right to uh, pass this legislation, and our teammates, um, Tidora Pasca and Olivia Eng, were representing the applicant who had challenged, who had been fined under the Act and was challenging the constitutionality of, of the Act under Section 7. So what sorts of strategies do you have prepare translating a factum, which is the written legal argument, into a coherent and persuasive oral submission in the context of a moot? What, what does the day of the moot look like from your perspective, and how do you translate what is written on the page into something that will, you think might persuade the judges? So from my perspective, I think what you want a moot to look like as a mooter is a dialogue that flows between yourself and the adjudicator. The last thing you want to do is just repeat what was written in your factum because they've read it. They're very well prepared for these things most of the time. And so what you're there to do on the day of is to answer those lingering questions that they may have and dispel any uh, outstanding concerns that weren't directly addressed in your factum. So the way I like to prepare for these things is to really sit with the material and come up with analogous real life circumstances that kind of reflect what's happening here to really ground your position in something that's that's more tangible. So for example, one of the arguments that I had to uh, rebut was the reason why this vaccination act didn't have a personalized risk assessment for each individual and the odds of that individual transmitting the disease themselves. So this was a blanket sort of mandatory vaccination um, without that individualized risk assessment. So I had to think about that and say, well, why do we do that in other contexts? So for example, we know that we can't have uh, drinking and driving. That's a blanket prohibition, even though we do know from time to time that some drunk drivers do make it home safely. So having these sort of concrete real life examples to bring back to show the judges why in your circumstance this law makes sense is really a useful way to engage with the material uh, beyond what's already written in the factum. And I'll just add that I think that it's very tempting, I certainly felt tempted by this when I first started mooting, to focus oral submissions on the strongest points and the strongest arguments for your side. And really what you want to focus your oral submissions on are the things that the judges are going to have the most trouble with. Because this is, you know, the 10, 20 minutes that you have up at the podium are your opportunity to help the judges work through these difficult, unfavorable points for your side and help them see things from your perspective or from your client's perspective. So I have to say that one of the, the common comments from the judges who are sitting on the other side of the podium um, when for the grand mooters and, and certainly for the top mooters in the competitions is that the, the students have worked so hard that they're actually as good as many of the senior lawyers who appear before them all the time. And, and I think just your words of advice about how to prepare for a moot is not different than what lawyers would do in, in a real life setting as opposed to a moot. You've actually described what appellate lawyers uh, do all the time. Now, of course, in this case, you, you were mooting something about mandatory vaccines in the sense of people were being forced to actually be vaccinated, which is not the case we have. I mean, in the real life, we haven't actually gone that far. And um, although we're seeing a, a different form of, of mandate, which is the vaccine passports that uh, or, or certificates in order to do certain activities. But um, just have to rem remember that the, the legislation you're talking about is, was fictional. Right. That was the purpose right. of the moot. <laughs> Seeing you both are, are articling now, do you find yourselves drawing from the skills you built during your moody experiences frequently or finding practice considerably different? I think the, the thing that feels most similar or most applicable is gravitating towards the holes in your argument more quickly. I think that if I hadn't had mooting experiences, it would be easier to kind of focus on the strong points of, of your argument in, in practice. And I think that I'm better anticipating what the other side is going to say, what the judges are going to have trouble with, because I, I mooted in law school. I think also that, you know, mooting is a team sport. And one thing that, that 
has really carried forward for me is being able to work very closely with, with different kinds of people, with people with different working styles, and be able to create something together that has one voice as far as the, the, the judge or the panel is concerned. Jerry, how about you? I find that a lot of the research assignments and tasks that I do get as an articling student now are the kinds of questions that don't have clear-cut answers. Um, if there was a clear-cut answer, they wouldn't be asking you to dig into it for hours trying to figure out what the solution is here. So I think mooting has helped me sort of reason by way of analogy that way to try to find something, something like it, but not necessarily directly on all fours with the facts that we have at hand and reasoning through those differences um, and trying to make a compelling argument while, as Hannah noted, um, noticing the weaknesses in your argument and then being able to rebut them effectively has been a transferable skill that I picked up from mooting. Great. Well, thank you, Jerry and Hannah, for taking the time to chat with us today. We wish you the best in your articling year and in your legal careers. As someone who coaches moots at the law school, I can say that both of you are off to a great start. Once again, I want to thank legal scholar Natalie DeRosier and constitutional lawyer Abby Deshman for their contributions to this episode that has focused on the charter during a pandemic. And thank you again to Jerry and Hannah. Thank, thank you for you. having us. Charter, of course, Southeast, West, and North, and along the way.